everybody, this is Danny Heineman. I'm the campus minister for RUF at the University of Wisconsin, and I'm here with one of my interns, Kelsey Sullivan. Hey guys, welcome back to our podcast. This podcast is a podcast we're calling A Story to Tell, and it is a podcast that's themed around contemporary ideas and questions and realities that we live with, trying to put them in their, their historical context and, and also in their theological and biblical context. And uh, this is episode six, I think. Yes, but it's episode three of a series that we've been doing on explaining the three letters of our ministry, which is R U F. But it's taken us a little time to get through mm-hmm. the R. Now we're at the point where we're actually going to talk about the Reformation itself. But we yes. did need to give a little bit of a context before we even got to this point. That's right. I mean, the R in Reformed University Fellowship is is with respect specifically to the Protestant Reformation. Some people listening to this have probably heard of that before. My guess is a fair amount of people have not heard of that before. And so we thought it was important to kind of give a relatively detailed backstory on kind of where this all came from and uh, why it is that we even care about it today. You know, I mean, why, why do we want to keep it in our name even still? I think a lot of our conversations today is going to be about Martin Luther. Um, I think just because he is the key player of the Reformation, whether he intended to cause the amount of change that he want that actually happened or not, he's sort of the one that kicked off the Reformation. Yeah. 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 Luther was, I mean, even if you don't know the story of the Reformation, you, if you live in America, you've probably heard his name and we're in Lutheran, you know, country up here in Wisconsin. There's a lot of a lot of our students come here from the Lutheran tradition, if they grew up in the church at all. Whether you're a Protestant or a Roman Catholic or whatever, Luther is one of the most important figures in the history of the church. So we, we're definitely going to talk about him for a while and how he kind of lit the fuse that finally exploded in the Protestant Reformation. And then we're going to talk a little bit, if we have time, I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about John Calvin, who was kind of the guy who took the mantle from, in, in a manner of speaking, took the mantle, mantle of kind of leadership in the Reformation after Luther. Like and taking the baton. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, it, you know, it wasn't only Luther and it wasn't only Calvin. I think there's a tendency to kind of reduce the, these traditions down to one person. But these two guys in particular were definitely the leaders. They're like the key players yeah. that we have to cover. And then hopefully we're going to talk about the Council of Trent, which was the response from the church in Rome to what became known as the Protestant movement was uh, advocating for. So Luther is notorious and celebrated for, like I said, being the one that sort of kicked off the Reformation. Um, he was a dude from Germany. He, he was in, he was, uh, one of the medieval students that we had talked about in one of our other podcasts. Um, and he was actually studying law at medieval university, (laughs) right? Um, but Luther got caught in a rainstorm one day and he had this divine, I don't know, it was almost like divine intervention on his life where he, in that storm, radically changed his life after that and he went and became a monk yeah he thought he was going to die apparently in europe at the time it was like people were really scared of getting struck by lightning (laughs) and uh he made a deal and said if he made it through if he made it home he would commit to you know what they called the religious life and he made it and so he became a monk (laughs) yeah and so luther was very i think like you said he what drove him to faith was his fear. I think that was like a common theme throughout mm. his studies of the word too. Mm-hmm. And like the scriptures, mm-hmm. he did fear God and he was obsessed with sin, which I think influenced later how he 
kind of refined and formed reform because uh, we're t- we're going to talk about a theological reform that Luther had, and it is with this obsession with forgiveness and sin yeah. that the the theological reformation came about. So. Yeah. He was intense in his studies. He went on a pilgrimage to Rome. That's right. I don't know a ton about the pilgrimage, but I do know that one of the, I mean, Luther was always, he was a pretty like black and white kind of thinker and always pretty extreme in his conclusions. And he was really committed to kind of what they would call a form of like ascetic asceticism. Like he was just very disciplined, very, very concerned to pursue a holy life. And when he got to Rome, he like there was a certain pilgrimage you could take to Rome and you could like crawl up the steps. I forget to which church, but um, it was like a thing you could do for like penance. And he got to Rome and was just appalled by the lack of piety among the clergy and how he felt kind of self-conscious about his commitment to holiness. You know, like he, he was the only one who was actually taking it seriously or that's how he felt. Right. So I, from from what I got from when I was kind of researching on Luther was that it was this pilgrimage to Rome where he sort of was disenchanted from these relics that yeah. they had. And he realized that there wasn't a lot of spirituality in the church traditions that were being taught and practiced. But his biggest grievance, but it was indulgences. Yeah. So after his pilgrimage to Rome, he he, he excelled as a student. He became a professor at the University of Wittenberg or Wittenberg in Germany. And by 1517, he was a lecturer there. And he had kind of given himself over to a really intense study of the New Testament and especially the book of Romans. At the end of his reflection, I mean, like, you know, it's interesting the way they, the courses were structured, at least at Wittenberg at the time, you basically, the, the, the lecturer would say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer some lectures on this topic. Like for, for this one, it was for Romans. And you just go until it's done. There's no like semester cycle. And so he spent a lot of time, like it was, I, it was over a year in the book of Romans. And at the end of it, he was convinced that a lot of the medieval reflection on merit, which is like the way we become holy in the, in the sight of God, that a lot of the medieval reflection on that was wrong, according to the scriptures. And so he, that was kind of bubbling up in him. And he, so he's, he's exploring this, like, how, how is it that we actually are seen as righteous in the mm-hmm. eyes of a holy God? At the same time, you know, like we talked about last week, this is when the papacy, the Bishop of Rome, it was kind of like the worst era for abuses of power, maybe of the entire history of the Bishop of Rome. And there was a Pope there named Leo, who we mentioned last week, we meet him again. And he's the one that said, since God gave us the papacy, let us enjoy it. He spent like all the money that they had to spend in a couple years. And he started this program of granting indulgences. Now, indulgences had been around for a while, but he saw them as a source of revenue for... Mm, they were like vanity projects for him. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so if you remember from last week, one of the things that was kind of central to reestablishing respect for the Bishop of Rome was building big cathedrals and stuff. I mean, we do this now. This is why, like, in America, you can't have a state capital that's taller than the federal capital, right? I mean, it's like a similar thing. The architecture expresses power. So he saw these indulgences as a source of revenue, both for the, for the just operations of the papacy, but also for these building projects that he was doing. And so he started, he authorized the granting of what, what are called indulgences across the whole empire. Now, indulgences were a practice whereby you could pay money to the church and that money was seen as like an act of penance. 
that, or that's the shape that they were in at least during the Reformation or in, at this point in the early 15, right. early 1500s. Um, so essentially you're saying that if people were to pay money for these indulgences, that forgiveness can be bought. Yes, they were, they were guaranteed by the, by the institution of the church that you can pay for holiness in the, in the eyes of God. And then it even extended to people who were dead and thought to be in purgatory. Like you could get them out of purgatory quicker. So there right. Was, so people are buying these indulgences to save their loved ones who may have already been died. That's right. So said in purgatory or to save themselves or loved ones that they think that they can buy the forgiveness. And in 1517, there was a guy named Johann Tetzel, and he strolled into Wittenberg on a quote-unquote mission from God. And he was really good at his job. And he was a he was a an indulgences salesman. And his job was fundraising for the church, basically. And so he was sent by the local bishop to go and get money from Wittenberg um, for two things. One, for St. Peter's Cathedral in uh, Vatican, and to pay for his bishop's fine that he owed to the Pope. <laughs> so this, the bishop that sent Tetzel to Wittenberg owed a fine to the Pope for holding two, two bishoprics at the same time. Like he was a bishop over two dioceses, which was not allowed. So he was, he was like pulling two salaries from and from one one of the dioceses that he was a bishop over, he never even went to. So he, he, he owed he owed the Pope a fine. So that's why Tetzel went to Wittenberg to go raise all his money. Now, when Luther, who was in Wittenberg, he was newly freed from the you know spiritual bondage that was and is the pursuit of like meriting righteousness before God, trying to earn it. When he heard this, you know, glorified used car salesman walking to town, declaring to the peasants around Wittenberg that their sins could be forgiven. And not only that, that their dead relatives in purgatory could be released to heaven if they bought indulgences, if they gave him what little money they had. It, it, he went off, like it just set him off. The famous phrase that's attributed to Tetzel, I'm not sure if it's accurate, if it's actually historical, but it was, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. I think one of the most corrupt things about this is to kind of consider what life was like for the people at the time. Yes. Because nobody had access to the scripture. Yeah, they were ignorant. Luther, I mean, they didn't know any better. Yeah. Luther had access to the scriptures because he had gone to school. Mm-hmm. And he had been able to discover for himself that faith is what? Totally. Where you're justified and you receive forgiveness. But these people, they were 90% of the population, and their life was like a pretty dreary existence. Yeah, and at the very least, they had no ability to, you know, push back against the claims that, you know, Tetzel is putting out, putting out there because they couldn't read the Bible, you know? Right. So when Tetzel shows up, it finally, like, all this stuff that had been brewing inside of Luther for, you know, several years at this point just kind of bubbled over. And he wrote down 95 arguments, or we call them theses. He put them on the church door at Wittenberg, which was kind of like the, the community bulletin, bulletin board. And he said, I want to have a disputation with, with somebody. I want to talk to these talk about these things. And they were things like the Pope doesn't have the power to grant salvation. Like you can still read the 95 theses on the internet. I mean, you can just Google search them and you can you can hear like how pissed he is about all this stuff. What happened, he didn't do this, but what happened was like it it was so it spoke so intimately to the frustrations of people at the time that somebody took them and they copied them with this new invention called the printing press. A copy was sent to Albert, who was this bishop who owed a fine to the Pope. He ignored it. But then it was also translated into German from Latin and distributed all over Germany. And that is kind of when this whole thing blew up. The established church 
kind of approach Luther and they're like, hey, you got to stop saying this stuff. And he's like, unless you can show to me from the scriptures that what I'm saying is incorrect, then I'm not going to stop. Luther's intention too, he he didn't intend for these 95 theses to go out beyond, like he just wanted to have a debate with the church, correct? That's, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it was a reform. Like he was, he was like, hey, we're off on this and we need to we need to have a conversation about kind of getting getting back closer to the scriptures and to the tradition. Like the other thing that was really powerful for Luther was that he be, he started studying Augustine's theology. Augustine was a bishop in Africa in the like early fifth century, late fourth century, and Augustine is probably the most influential theologian in the Western Church tradition. So he's studying Augustine and the scriptures, and that's how he kind of arrived at his conclusion about the way that people are made righteous in the eyes of God. And his, so he was basically like, listen, like we're, we've, we've lost Augustine and we've lost the scriptures in the way that we're thinking about this. And we need to have a, we need to at least have a conversation about it. One way to summarize kind of what Luther was so hot about was that when he studied Romans and the rest of the scriptures and the, the theology of the church, he was like, there's an order to the way that people are saved. And he wanted to make a distinction between justification and then sanctification. Now, if you don't know what those words mean, justification, the way that Luther wanted to define it, was the act. It was an act by which God declares us righteous in his eyes. Now, anybody who has become a Christian knows that, you know, when they become a Christian, they're not instantly made, like, morally pure. <laughs> like, they still sin and, you know, struggle against it and that kind of thing. But he was like, that's not the same thing as justification. That's sanctification. The struggle against sin and God's kind of gradual purifying us of, of the, what sin that remains in us is called sanctification. And Luther wanted to say that the order is justification first, sanctification second. The pushback against that was no, sanctification comes before justification. And so you can really, you can think about it in that way. It's like, what, in what order do justification and sanctif- sanctification come to a person? And this is Luther's famous phrase was, in Latin, it was simil ustus et peccator, I think is how you pronounce it. At the same time, just and a sinner. Just in the eyes of God because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And then also still a sinner, like awaiting the full kind of moral purification that God will do to us in the last day. That makes me think of the verse. It's like, while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, that was his... (laughs) That was the thing. Like, that was what he read and was like, oh, this must be how it is. So that was Luther's thing. I mean, Luther, you could spend a lot of time talking about Luther, and he's a really fascinating figure, and he's also really like a really complicated figure. I mean, when he, especially when he got older, he got kind of senile and angry and mean, and he had some anti-Semitic views that ought to be condemned. But he, you can't deny his, his like central role in the, in the reform movement that became Protestantism. Now, again, like we said, Luther really, he was just trying to reform things. He wasn't trying to like split off. But when he said that he wouldn't recant his views unless he was, he was proved from the scriptures to him that, that he was wrong, he was excommunicated. And that was kind of the beginning of the split. That, that's kind of the beginning of the tearing of the fabric in the Western church. It didn't have to be that way. I, I mean, I think it has to be understood as a as a movement of the spirit in the Western church. I think it also, so, so in that sense, it's really like a, like a good with a capital G, but in the other, on the other hand, what it did, or, or maybe, maybe in, in the response of the establishment church, 
what what the response of the establishment church did was like was not good. You know, it, it was a tragedy. Like the the splitting of the church, it was it is something that we ought to lament. You know, like there are there are lots of really good things that ought to be celebrated about the Reformation, but it, I don't think it it should be celebrated as like an unqualified good. You know, like it's like there are some really good and necessary things that happened. And then there are also some like really tragic aspects of it that we still live with. Right. It did, did create a lot of turmoil and yeah. social rebellion. Yeah. Well, you know, just like practically speaking, like I couldn't go take communion at a Roman Catholic church. Right. And that is an affront to the unity of the body of Christ, you know? Yeah. So Danny, let's talk a little bit about the council of Trent. Yeah, yeah. So the Council of Trent, it happened in, it was convened in 1545. It didn't end until 1563. So it's like almost 20 years. 20 years? Um, They had some breaks in between because of wars between, I think, like French and German kings. But Council of Trent was a a council. It was a general council, the 19th general council that the church in the West had called to deal with the teachings of the Reformation. And, And the reformers themselves were asking for it. Like they were like, we really want to counsel. And if you may have not picked this up from last week's podcast, but this, the question of councils versus Pope was still a live question. And there were still people in both Protestants and Roman Christians who thought that councils should be elevated above Pope in terms of power. So even the idea of calling a council was kind of fraught and the Pope himself was kind of like, he was really hesitant to do it. But finally they got it called. And there were three sessions over the course of 20 years that were called or that that were enacted. And basically what happened there, there were kind of three major touch points in the dispute between Protestants and Roman Christians. There's a question of justification. We've talked about that one. The question of how we're going to think about and talk about the sacraments and then how the church ought to be governed which is kind of like the, the, the Pope question. And we talked a lot about that last week as well. And so all three of these things were dealt with at the council. And the Council of Trent is a really big and complicated thing to think about and to talk about. But there are a few things we can say. A lot of the most pertinent issues in the Protestant Reformation, in particular with regard to justification and the sacraments, were dealt with in the first session. And even though it was called a general council, which is to say that like all bishops are allowed to come, like all over the Western church, there were only like 30 there when it convened, and there were only 60 there when they took votes on the canons of the first session. And so it was not, you couldn't say it was really a, a general council. By the end of it, there were a lot of people there, and that was when they kind of instituted the moral reforms. And so, you know, if we're talking about the need for reformation as both moral and theological, a lot of the moral things were addressed in the Council of Trent. The theological right, it things... Seems like- Sorry, it seems like the Catholic Church was willing to admit that they were wrong with some of the moral things that were happening. That's right. But they weren't willing to throw away the tradition and doctrine that was problematic to yeah. the reformers. Yeah, and really with with the question of justification and the question of the sacraments, like in particular was with communion, like how are we going to talk about that? We don't have time to talk about all the details of that, but there were opposing views on both of those things. And what the Council of Trent did was take open questions about how we're going to think about and talk about those doctrines, and it codified one side of the debate. It, like, made one side official. And the side that it made official was in opposition to the Protestant movement. And so what, you can, what some historians have said is, like, the Council of Trent 
is the event by which the Christians under the Bishop of Rome anathematized every other kind of Christian in the world. Anathematized means like they are excommunicated, essentially, like you're not a part of the body of Christ. This, the council is the thing that made the split inevitable, or it made it unrecoverable. And there are still things like today, like if, if Protestants are ever going to come back into communion with Roman Christians, if we're ever going to like recognize each other's sacraments, even, you know, as valid, the Council of Trent is going to have to be addressed. All of the things, all of the kind of like major points of doctrine that are addressed in the Council of Trent still stand. And that's the major source of division between the church and the West right now. I guess I have a question that just comes up in my experience as being a Christian and having people that I know that are Catholic and some evangelical Christians. I've heard say things about like, you know, Catholic salvation. I've heard the same thing said by Catholics. And I'm just wondering, is it, is it even like, is the divide so bad still between or just like what people believe that that claim could be made. Does that make sense? The Catholics Say aren't saved or something? Yeah, like a, someone who is Catholic would not actually be saved because of the fact that they might believe that they're saved by works and not by sure. faith or things like that. Yeah. Um, I think I would answer that emphatically no. I think like that, like just personally, I would say that, and I'll, I'll die on that hill, you know? You don't have to believe in justification by faith to be justified by faith, if that makes sense. Right. So there are most definitely Christians, Christian is the wrong word, there are most definitely people who have been saved in Christ, indwelled by the Spirit in the Roman church. And if you're going to say that they're not, you've got some, I think you have some real theological problems. I also think we're in an interesting moment in church history right now, because like on campus, we, I think RUF has more in common theologically with the, uh, with St. Paul's than we do even with the other Presbyterian group on campus. And so the like traditional kind of fault lines of division, even theologically are shifting. And so I think that that presents a real opportunity for, for the church to kind of mend some of its wounds. Yeah, um, for reconciliation, I yeah. think. And so when you step back and look at church history, it's like it's been a thousand years since we've had kind of full unity. And even then, it's hard to say there are people who would argue that, that, that what we had before 1054 was not, not actual unity. So it can feel a little overwhelming, I think, when you begin to think about unity. Like, how are we ever even going to do this? But I do think there are some really interesting things going on right now even in probably over the last 75 years or so that I think will continue mm. that are exciting for the prospect of church unity. Yeah. Even though it's going to take a ton me, of work. It just makes me think, I think this is in Ephesians, but it says like, we are one body under one faith, one God, one baptism, one spirit. That's right. One Lord, and one so, faith, one baptism. Yep. Although it, it may seem like the body is fractured and divided, I feel like God does take pleasure in like, using our folly for his good and glory. And I don't necessarily know what that means or how that's going to play out. But I mean, like these different sects of Christianity, like people are hearing the gospel, the word is going out and people are being saved. Yeah. God in many ways works in spite of us all the time. Right. And I think he's he's definitely been doing that in, in our own, our, our sinful inability to reconcile. And so, yeah, it's not all doom and gloom. Thanks, guys, for listening. You should tune in next week. I think we're going to just keep going for a little while. So tune in next week for the next episode of Story to Tell, and we talk about where RUF came from. Bye.